On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lekemin haretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen. The blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast here at B'nai Shalom, our Erev Shabbat portion and service. This Sabbath, we have another double portion. We're coming to the last two portions of the book of Numbers. And the first of those two portions is in Numbers chapter 30. The portion is entitled Matot, which means tribes. And it comes from the first verse, which says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, and he proceeds into a teaching. And the second portion actually is going to begin just a short time later, and it will come to chapter 33. And its name in the Hebrew is Masse, which means stages or journeys. And from the first verse of chapter 33, it says, these are the journeys or stages of the sons of Israel. And so let's take a look at these two portions together for this Sabbath. The word that is going to be given to the tribes of Israel, and it's kind of interesting that he would say it that way. Normally, he would say to all the children of Israel. 
But the moment you get tribes mentioned in the thing, you're talking about further division of authority down into the children of Israel. In other words, each tribe had its own definition, had its own leaders. And so by him talking about that, he's already starting to talk about the use of authority. Now, we're getting ready to have what is, I consider to be a very principled discussion about the authority of speech. And he's going to start talking about vows. In fact, let me read to you essentially what begins here. Verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father has forbidden her. Now, let's talk about vows. Vows are like declarations. They're like oaths that you would take. You would swear to something. When you go to a courtroom and they have you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, you're making a vow. And by the way, if you don't keep that, what you said, if you won't swear that thing and you lie, they'll prosecute you. It's called perjury. By the way, God says the same thing. If you make a vow to me about something and you don't do it, I will hold you accountable for that. Vows are extremely powerful. And let me just go ahead and tell you real quickly that the Messiah has warned us about speaking vows. What he has suggested to us, instead of speaking a vow, why don't you just let your yes be a yes and your no be a no? The person who gets angry and gets upset, and he says, well, I swear I'm going to do such and such if you do such and such. You have bound yourself to something that God's going to hold you to account for. And it's not good. You should not be making oaths or swearing unless it's absolutely essential because, it's, because God will hold you to it. Now, let me back up for a little bit. I need to do some basic teaching here since we're talking about this subject. Let's talk about the other levels of speech that, that the Bible tells us that the tongue is a very powerful thing and that you, we need to keep it in discipline so that you speak correctly. So let's talk a little bit about how God has created us to be able to speak and the ways we do speak. There are three time zones that you can speak in. You can speak in the past and talk about things that have happened. You can speak in the present or you can speak into the future. By the way, a vow is into the future. You are grabbing hold of the future. You're pulling it down and you're making the future become the reality now. And if you're going to alter God's creation, if you're going to change the way he does things or has set up the earth, by the way, God spoke and the heavens and the earth came into existence. When you speak a vow, you're literally using the power of creation and you're creating a state of whatever it is that you're doing. Let me just remind you, 
the Declaration of Independence was a vow made by all these men. We created a nation out of it. Created a nation. When a man goes and gets married, he speaks a vow in his marriage. And he says, I will be your husband. I'm making a vow to be your husband, regardless of conditions. And by the way, that's one of the things about vows a lot of people don't really understand. There are no conditions with a vow. If you have conditions in an agreement, that's called a contract. That's a promise. Those aren't vows. When God makes a covenant with us, it's a vow. God makes a vow and it's a covenant. When we enter into his covenant, we make a vow to be a part of that covenant. That's the reason why when we break the covenant, it's horrible. It's very difficult. In a contract, if you decide to break the contract, well, the, the contract can clearly be broken, but you will have to pay damages for it. In other words, if I get into an agreement with you, we have a contract and I fail to keep the contract and I break it, well, if you sue me, I will have to pay damages for it and then we're done, the contract's over with. But when you do a vow and you break it, there's no clean line of separation. There's no perforated line to end this agreement that was made in the vow. In fact, what it does is it shreds the fabric of your soul because your soul is tied up in a vow. That's the reason why divorce is so tragic. There's so much damage that's done when a divorce does. It's not a contract. We didn't end the contract and move on. No, it was a vow and your soul was bound up in it. And now it's, it's shredded and you, there's scar tissue and there's hurt that lasts long after that is over and done. God says we have to be very careful because it's extremely powerful. It's the power that God uses when he speaks and he grants some of it to us to use to live, but we have to be very careful with regard to it. And he's also set some rules within the house, within the authority that is there. Essentially, it's this, a father and a husband has a certain measure of authority when it comes to the subject of vows concerning his wife and his daughters. It doesn't say sons. It says wife and daughters. If a wife makes a vow and has bound herself under the Lord because she made a vow to do something, the Torah says the following. In the day that he hears it, the husband, in the day that he hears his wife is committed to that, he must make a decision. Am I going to allow that vow to continue and she'll be bound to it, or am I going to annul her vow and God will grant me the authority to protect her and keep her from quite honestly over committing herself to do something. The fact of the matter is that the wife is highly dependent upon her husband for things and she has no business committing herself to do something beyond her husband. So God grants the husband, the ability to set aside the vow to keep things under control and correct. The same thing also extends to his daughters. The day he hears his daughter speak a vow, he has the authority to annul the vow. Now, I'm sure all of you are familiar with this tradition. 
if you've had a daughter who goes to get married, and if you've seen weddings, you notice the daughter is brought down the aisle by the father and presented to the bridegroom. And one of the first questions that's done in a very traditional wedding is that the guy who's officiating, the preacher or whoever's officiating, will ask the question, is there anyone opposed to this marriage? If and if not, then let him be forever silent. But if he doesn't speak now, uh, let him remain silent. And they're referring back to this. They're referring to the authority of a father over his daughter. That's not an open invitation for, well, I don't want her to get married because I really am in love with her. That's not what that's talking about. What it's talking about is the father. They're asking the father, but they do it openly. Hey, Dad, are you okay with hearing your daughter make vows of marriage to this man? Because if you're going to have a problem with it, you need to say it right now here. You need to say it when she, on the day she makes the vow. And that's the reason why we have that little thing in, the, in a wedding ceremony. We're trying to follow this commandment. And I, in weddings that I've done and so forth, I look at the father and I say, do you extend your blessing or do you withhold your blessing? Are you going to annul her vow or not? And if he annuls the vow, I don't care what ceremony you put her through. She's not married before God. God didn't hear her vow. He doesn't hold her vow of marriage. He might have made a vow to be married to her, but she didn't make a vow to be married to him. And that thing is not getting started correctly. You got to have the dad agree not to annul the vow. And thus we have this routine. A young man finds a young lady, thinks I want to marry her. That young man needs to go to her father and ask, will you give your blessing? Will you agree when your daughter makes a vow of marriage to me? Can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And while, you know, a lot of people used to do this all the time, it's been kind of grown out of favor nowadays. Couples need to think that they can go off and marry whomever they want whenever, and they can forget what their parents have to say about it, especially the father. It is a huge spiritual mistake. A lot of fathers don't know that they have this authority. They just don't know. It. And if you have a daughter and you have a young man approach her that wants to marry your daughter and you don't agree with it and so forth, and you can't figure out how to way to negotiate with this young man to get it done correctly so that you will agree to it, you need to pull this piece of scripture out and show it to him and say, the moment I hear that she's run off with you to be married, I can annul that vow. I can annul that marriage. And you can go ahead and do whatever you want, but it won't be a marriage before God. You will not be in a covenant marriage of so forth. Now, a lot of people are very stubborn and rebellious, and they think they can pull that off. They can't. I will tell you in the course of the messianic movement that I've been involved with for many years, and I've done a lot of weddings, done premarital counseling and so forth, and I've seen all manner of different couples coming together. And I have seen where a father objected strongly to his daughter being married to a particular fellow, and that he, he exercised that authority and their marriage did not last. Oh, they got married for a while, but it didn't last. I've seen it a couple of times. 
marriage was something that was created by God back there when he created man and woman. And he's the guy who has established these rules about the authority of speech, about what vows do and how they work. He created the heavens and the earth by the spoken word. It's a very powerful thing. And by the way, he grants us some of that authority to speak as well. And he allows us in the course of a marriage covenant or whatever we would enter into, we will create, we'll allow you to adjust my creation. I'll allow you to change my creation, but I'm going to hold you to it. Let me tell you one other vow that's very important. For those of you, brethren, who decided to, in your younger days, to join the military, to join the military, you had to take an oath. And the oath went something like that you pledged, you vowed, that you would protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign or domestic, and that you would obey all legal commands. Now, when you go in the military and you decide that you're not going to obey, you're going to be disobedient and so forth, they're going to bring you back to this vow. They're going to bring you back to this oath. And they're going to, they're going to judge you based on you set it out of your mouth and you're not doing it. And they're going, to, they're going to hold you to it. I would also remind everyone, when I said to you, the vow and the oath has no conditions. A lot of guys think, well, they take the oath, you know, to protect the Constitution and so forth. While they're in the military service, while they're on active duty, they, when they wear the uniform, that's when that applies. No, that's not what they swore an oath to. They swore that oath forever. As long as they're alive, they swear. Same way you make a vow, you know, to your wife, to be her husband. As long as you're alive and as long as she's alive, this oath is in place. This vow is in place. In recent days in our country, there's a lot of tension that's been given to veterans about the multiple wars that this country has been into in the course of my lifetime. You know, I've been involved from Vietnam all the way up to our present day. And a lot of veterans have been hurt. A lot of military people went over. They, you know, we, you've seen the pictures and the organizations trying to help veterans that have been crippled, handicapped, disabled, and so forth. And in fact, yours truly, I'm classified as a disabled veteran with the VA because of my activity in Vietnam when I was a young man. And a lot of attention has been given to them to help them out. And praise God, they're doing that. You know, we have a whole department of our government, the Veterans Administration, that's supposed to be helping take care of, of the people that come and serve the country when they gave the best of their lives to the country. I don't know if you're aware of this, but only 7% of the U.S. population are veterans. We're talking about a very small percentage in this whole great country that is that, and that's the reason why they give emphasis to trying to do good to them and help them out with it. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about veterans is we all know that when we took that oath, it didn't go away just because we got out of the military. And to this day, as I stand before you, I am aware that I made a vow before God 
that I would protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that vow, the authority of that vow, is still on my life as long as I'm alive. And other veterans know this as well. And that's the same thing for when a man goes and decides to get married. If you're going to get married, you're going to make a vow of marriage. It's forever without conditions, without conditions. In fact, that's the reason why the marriage vows say things like for richer or for poor in sickness and in health. Doesn't make any difference what the conditions are. In dark days or happy days, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference what the other qualifications are. We're going to do what this oath said. We're going to do what this vow says. Very powerful thing. And guess what? The Torah teaches this. And that's what this first part of this portion is about, is the rules and laws with regard to vows. Now, the next item that we have here in this particular portion, if you'll recall, back in the previous portions, we had the story about Balaam. And Balaam had been brought. Balak wanted to hire him to curse the children of Israel. And essentially, he was not able to curse. In fact, the very powerful portions of scriptures about the blessing that he spoke, certain powerful things said about God that came out of those blessings. And so Balak was very upset, dismissed Balaam. You know, yeah, I paid you to curse them. In fact, you have blessed them. So afterwards, Balaam is credited with saying to the Midianite kings and to Balak, the ones that were all concerned about Israel coming there, you know, you guys are really going about this all the wrong way. Rather than having me curse them and then you mount up your armies and you go be successful in combat, against them. There's too many of them, by the way. Rather, what you should do is you should get them where they get cursed by their God because of their own actions. And they said, the way you do that is what you do is you send in your sons and your daughters, intermingle with their sons and their daughters, invite them to your festivals of your gods and so forth, and intermingle back and forth and go contrary to what Moses has taught them, and that way God will then curse them. God will judge them because they have violated the agreement they had with God and what Moses had said to them. Very simple spiritual plan. By the way, it works every time. All you gotta do is if you wanna corrupt a group of people, it just sends some other people in and invite you off to different things, invite you to a different little kind of party, have some fellowship, doing some different kinds of things. And by the way, turn away from what Moses has instructed you and what the scripture says. And it's really easy on how to corrupt, you know, God's people. And by the way, the history of God's people is this has been done many times before. In fact, I would like to submit to you that Christianity's number one biggest problem is exactly this. Christianity started off correctly, started off with the Messiah's resurrection, the teaching of the Messiah, started off with the apostles. But you know what happened? Shortly after the apostles went around, all of a sudden all the Christians decided to intermingle with other religious peoples in other lands. 
And in particular, in within the Roman Greco world, they had multiple gods. And guess what? Christianity got intermingled with it. And then suddenly, the things that Moses had said, things that Yeshua said, the apostles had said, it gets twisted, it gets turned, it gets turned into something else, and something else comes out as a result. And instead of this great plan of God working beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and selling, in your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed, it was a great plan for the whole world, all of a sudden, no, the church now says, no, that plan was just for Israel, and really the real plan is with us, the church. And they separate themselves and disconnect from Israel. In fact, they even take the first part of the Bible, they call the Old Testament, and they dismiss it. And they just hone in on the last part, the, quote, New Testament. And they do exactly what Balaam told the Midianites to do to Israel. They have had the same thing done to them. They've listened to the counsel of Balaam. By the way, that is not just some minor opinion on my part. Do you know what Yeshua said in Revelation 2 and 3 when he was warning in the end times what he called the churches? He was warning the churches to stay on course with him, to get ready for his coming. Do you know what one of the warnings was? Don't follow the teaching of Balaam. Hmm. Apparently, we have the teaching of Balaam still with us today. You know, it's for the end times. You know, the people who say to me, well, that teaching back in the Old Testament, those are just historical things. They don't really apply to us anymore. Well, Yeshua certainly didn't quote from them. And he was speaking into the future at the end of the age and said, it's going to apply then. In fact, all of the teachings that we have in the Torah, they apply every day of your life, including this one, because you're under constant barrage to move away from what Moses has taught and to hear some other alternative, and it's mixed with other things. The subject is so huge. The examples are so numerous that, quite honestly, it's overwhelming to try to explain to you all the different things. But let me summarize it by saying this. You and I, right now today, scattered in the nations, we're not in the promised land yet, waiting on the Messiah to return. The reason why we're scattered in these nations is because our fathers sinned against the Lord and scattered us out. That was the punishment. He said, I'll kick you out of the land, and I'll scatter you into all the nations of the world. And here we are. We are living in the midst of an unclean land with an unclean people. In the most recent public displays of the way that our fellow citizens behave in our country and around the world, it's nothing short of the worst examples that we can read back in the Torah. For example, you don't have to do a great study on what was it like at Sodom and Gomorrah. Just watch the news. The kind of debauchery that's going on is 
way more than it was when I was a young man. There's no question the world has changed on us. We are like Isaiah said, we're in the days where they call the guilty righteous and the righteous guilty and sweet is called bitter and bitter is called sweet and everything is upside down. Light is for darkness and darkness is for light. Filthiness is celebrated as righteous. You don't need me to go off and list all of the different obvious examples of what I'm talking about. This Torah is for today. These principles are for us today. Now that event that took place where Balaam gave the counsel to the Midianites, they took his counsel. They sent their daughters down there. And we have this in the story of Phineas. We have this event in which that Phineas was able to block the judgment that was coming upon Israel because of it. And only 24,000 sons of Israel died in the plague because they intermingled and they turned away from Moses. These are not days to turn away from Moses. These are not days to set aside the commandments of the Lord, especially when it comes to bizarre human behavior. These are not the days to be doing that, whether it be gender issues or homosexuality issues or any other behavioral issues or the idea that you can be the leader of this nation and yet you can be a traitor and you can be a crook. And yet we're still going to honor him as the leader of the nation. That's how bizarre these days have become. I'm here to tell you, God is coming to the end of it. You know, we know at the end of the age, he stands up and he says, enough is enough. We're going to judge this world. And then you and I are looking for that journey out of this world to the promised land. We're looking forward to the resurrection. We're looking forward to getting past this and getting out of Egypt and getting to the promised land, getting to the real kingdom where it is going to be at. This chapter 31 deals with an example of judgment that happened as a result of what Balaam had done. Moses was given as his last and final thing, they're leading the children of Israel in the wilderness. He was given an authorization from God that he could take 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes, a total of 12,000 men, and that he could dispatch those men over to the five Midianite kings that had participated in this thing, took the counsel of Balaam and caused this great harm upon Israel and send those troops in, and they did. And those 12,000 troops went in and wiped out five Midianite kings and all of their stuff. And what's interesting about this is that there's a pattern here. 12,000 men, 1,000 from each of the tribes, and you see that being described here in chapter 31, beginning of verse 5 and 6. This is, again, another one of these things where we have a historical pattern that moves us all the way to the end of the age. Do you know we have another pattern that follows us, a final battle thing? This was the battle of Midnight Kings. We have another thing that will be happening in the Great Tribulation. It's in Revelation chapter 7, where God calls for the sealing 
of each of the 12 tribes that are listed of 12,000 men in each tribe. This was 1,000 in each of the 12 tribes. That one in the future is 12,000 men in each of the 12 tribes. And Revelation 7 goes through and talks about the listing of the tribes that are going to be involved. This was a final battle with Moses and the children of Israel as a result of the wilderness experience just before they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And that one in Revelation chapter 7 is the same thing. It's the final battle between God's people and the enemies on the land before the end of the age, before we cross over and go into the promised land. And there's a fascinating parallel that's given here. Now, the one that we know about the 144,000, one of the things it tells us is they're not going to suffer death in the great trip. By the way, that's a wonderful promise. Great trips facing us. If you can get hooked up with one of those 144,000, you know for certain they're going to make it to the end and they make it and we stick with them. You're going to be, you're going to make it. Well, did you know this 12,000 that went after the, they had the same thing? It's recorded for us that after the battle came back, they came back to divide up the booty. In other words, the soldiers go out and capture, they get certain spoils and rewards. That's their payment for their service of going in and serving in the military for that action. And we get the description of the booty given to us in chapter 31. And then it comes to this verse 40. I want you to listen to this. It's chapter 31, verse 40. These 12,000 men who went to battle. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands and the captains of hundreds approached Moses, and they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. Wait a minute. I got 12,000 troops. I'm going to go take on five Midianite kings. We have a battle. <laughs> we win. We didn't lose a single guy. You're telling me that not one arrow penetrated a guy, not one sword made it through, not one spear made it through. That's impossible. Now, actually, what it's saying is this. They went to war and they didn't die at the end of the battle. They were resurrected. They were resurrected off of the battlefield. God brought them back, you know, so they didn't suffer a, a complete consequence of being a part of that battle. The 144,000 are going to be in the great tribulation, the greatest time of danger there is, distress upon mankind. And they're going to be there at the end greeting the Lord when he comes back. Every one of them is going to be present. They're not going to suffer the resulting consequences of what that's all about. And just like this 12,000 went and did that, they're able to accomplish that as well. I want to take you to a verse in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and verse 35. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the faith chapter. By faith, God did this. By faith, this brethren did this. Well, in verse 35, here's what it says. 
women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection that first phrase women received back their dead by resurrection the only time that we find historical where we have the children of israel that have gone into a battle that the census is taken after the battle saying not one man was missing from who went to the battle is this one here in our Torah portion. And so Hebrews 11 is referring to this event. These men came back from the battlefield to get their portion of the booty. They Men came back to their wives. Fathers came back to their families that had gone off the battle. That's the same thing that will be happening with 144,000. They're going to make it. Uh, no matter what the consequences or what they think the Great Tribulation is going to be, they're going to make it in the end. And that's a wonderful promise for us, and we see it illustrated here for us in this particular case. Let me, uh, let me move now a little bit of time. Let me move to our last tour portion of Numbers, Massey. Numbers chapter 33. This is one of the most exciting chapters there is that you can do in a Bible reading program. And this, is, this will test you as to whether or not. Numbers chapter 7 is another one that's like that. This, Numbers chapter 33, will really test you on your Bible reading program. And I defy people who are going through a Bible reading program to tell me they read every word of this chapter. Because what this is, this is the listing that Moses was commanded to do. They listed all the different camping places the children of Israel went on for that journey of 40 years in the wilderness from the time they left Egypt until the time they came up to cross the Jordan. There, they had 42 different camping places. And so we have a listing of that was done. Let me read the first words of Numbers chapter 33. These are the journeys or the stages of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. And they journeyed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Did you notice that? You see, let's go back to the Passover on the 14th. And on the 15th day, the day after the Passover, that's the day they began to journey and leave Egypt. And they began to journey from Ramesses up to a camping place called Sukkot. The 15th of Nisan of the first month, that's a high Sabbath for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, they were eating the bread of haste, and they were leaving Egypt. And it's in that first week that we have these events being described. So the very first camping place where they had to set up was called Sukkot. And in fact, that's in verse 5, then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses and camped in Sukkot. Sukkot means huts or tents. That first camping place is where they set up their temporary shelters so they could go mobile. Before that, they'd been living in houses and huts and cities and so forth. And they went and they established that fort. And that's the beginning 
of the counting of the 42 starting places for the wilderness journey to the promised land. And you will go down through here and that gives you a listing from place to place to place to place. And here's the interesting thing. These places, the names of these places, they're not really places that have that name. It's more of a description of what happened to them while they were doing it. And if you recall, they made the journey down to where they camp near the Red Sea, they cross the Red Sea, then they go across and they go to Mount Sinai and they leave Mount Sinai and go to Kadesh. But then the Lord says, no, you're gonna travel in the wilderness 40 years. And so they end up traveling multiple times. And then finally, at the end, they camp several places and cross over the River Jordan and go on in. The total was 42 of them. Now, when I talked to you before about the pattern, Historically, like for example, 1,000 men from each tribe, 12,000 total, how that matches the 144,000. Well, this one is even more profound because the scripture tells us they're going to be 42 months in the great tribulation. And there's 42 camping places here. And in the course of this, it will tell us about the number of cities that are going to be in the land of Israel and in preparation for it. In fact, let me take you to that, mention that to you very quickly. In chapter 35, it's going to be describing the cities that will be in there. And it says essentially this, there's going to be 48 total cities. Listen to me, 48 total cities. There'll be six cities of refuge, three on the western side of the Jordan, three on the eastern side of the Jordan for a total of 42 cities and six cities of refuge. And Yeshua one day was being asked about the great tribulation and what was going to be happening and the distress the people were going to be in of that. He said, I tell you, he said, you will flee from one city to the next. You will not flee to all of the cities of Israel before the son of man returns. Total number of cities in Israel, 42. You will not journey more than 42 places before the Son of Man returns. Well, the ancient journey of Israel in the, in the ancient Egyptian Exodus was 42 camping places. Isn't that fascinating? So chapter 33, it gives us this listing of these 42 camping places, and it's a foreshadowing of what the tribulation saints are gonna be doing if they have to journey to a total of 42 different places. And as I said to you, these aren't necessarily physical places, but they're descriptions of things. Would it be interesting to you to know that the meanings of the names of these places seem to be prophetic events that would be taking place? And it will be kind of interesting when the tribulation saints get actually in the tribulation and they go back to this passage and it will tell them, it'll forecast to them different things that are going to be happening in the future, given they recamp and go to a different place. Now, I don't know for certain that the tribulation saints are going to go precisely 42 places, but I do know this, they will definitely not go more than 42 places. 
And as to the different regions and different camps scattered all over the world, the tribulation saints trying to escape, I'm not sure exactly all the details that would take place, but I can share this with you. The very first camping place of all of those camps is going to be called Sukkot because that would be the place that they set up the temporary huts and shelters and RVs and tents and all of that so that they can be on the journey of escaping. I know that for sure. The first place will be called Sukkot, and the total number of places can't be greater than 42. Now, what's in between? Well, Numbers chapter 33 is there for us, and here's the interesting part. The sages of Israel, when they see this part where it says, at the command of the Lord, Moses recorded it. They're a little bit perplexed. Why did God give Moses such a precise command on this? Why didn't Moses just record, hey, they went to a bunch of places, went to a number of places? Why, why do we have to name every place that we went to? Why do we have to give a name to it? Well, brethren, it's because we know there is no idle word in the scripture. And that if God commanded Moses to do this, and we're going to be going through the pattern of this, there's obviously something in here for us to understand. Now, there have been some studies that have been done on this to understand the meaning of each of the names, and there is some very interesting information in there. I'm not going to be able to get into it with you in this door portion, but suffice it to say, I think it's going to have great relevance and have great bearing on us when, if we're tribulation states traveling in the great tribulation during this time frame, it's going to be another example of where the Torah we think is about the ancients, and it turns out the Torah is really about us. When we get into the book of Deuteronomy and when we conclude the whole Torah, I'm going to show you where Moses knows that what he's recording here is going to be for the last generation. Let me say that to you one more time, because I think you and I are sitting in the last generation right now. I'm going to show you in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is going to tell us the stuff that's been recorded in the Torah is going to fall upon us. And this is exactly what Paul was referring to when he said in 1 Corinthians 10, now those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. That the pattern of the ancient exodus out of Egypt is really a prophecy for the last generation that it will be on the greater exodus when we come out of all of the nations of the world, not just Egypt. The prophets say this very clearly. The Jews refer to this as the final redemption of Israel. And they know that the Passover, there's a future Passover that will start that exodus. There's a future campsite site called Sukkot that we'll go to. And right now today, one of the final things that we do in the course of keeping the Moedim is at the end of the year, we keep a feast called Sukkot. What does God command of us and tell us that we're supposed to be learning from that? We're supposed to be learning and remembering how our ancestors lived in sukkahs 
They lived in these temporary things on their journey of the Egypt. Why would God want us to have a festival so that we could remember that? Because at the end of the age, there's a generation that will have to do that again. And he wants them to be trained and oriented and ready to be a part of God's great deliverance at the end of the ages. What happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. One of the greatest principal teachings that we have about how prophecy works in all of the Bible and the Torah is a book full of history that is going to be prophecy to the final generation. You do know that history is just prophecy that hasn't happened yet. And prophecy is history that hasn't happened yet. But they too work together. And so as we come to the conclusion of the book of Numbers in the wilderness, but me Bart, brethren, it's all about our future. So I leave that with you for this Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.